Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest. But first, I wanted to give you a quick update. At the time of this recording, we are rolling literally through the holiday season. And this year, we've had runners finished races in Berlin, London, Twin Cities, New York, and Chicago, and other events across the country. We've also had gyms and group fitness teams hosting our push-pull events and all sorts of other fundraisers. And as we end the year, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who is helping to spread awareness, raise funds, and help us fight for a world without pancreatic cancer. If you'd like to see how to get involved, visit projectpurple.org and follow Project Purple on all social media channels. We are currently recruiting for all our 2023 races, and thank you for a wonderful 2022, and as we roll into 2023, we are super excited to be back in many of our cities, hosting events, running marathons, and continuing to raise awareness for pancreatic cancer families as they battle with their journey. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way. I say that I, I, I say that a lot, but we've had guests from the UK, but Rebecca Dixon coming to us all the way from the United Kingdom, just outside of London. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, Rebecca, I think you're like our fourth or fifth Oh, this is bad. <laughs> so I, I have like kind of I'm, I'm trying to think here. Uh, like I should have did this before. So this is this is note to the the staff here. We we have to we have to do a better job of doing our homework. Um I'm gonna say you're our fifth guest from the UK. Okay. And I, I wanna thank you for being on the podcast, but this is a testament to you know, what this has become because we've had guests from the UK on here before. And it's always awesome that we, we cross the pond, as we say, right? Like the, you know, crossing the pond. And, and the really amazing thing, I, I think that this allows us to do here on this podcast, bring guests from outside the United States, is just to really show the magnitude and, and the impact of this disease isn't just a, a disease here in the US. Absolutely, yeah. Right, and and this is I know you and I were just talking briefly before we hit record. You know, I was recently in London. You know, we've worked with our 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 UK partners um, that are in the UK. You know, raising awareness, running events, and it, and it's just so cool. You know, uh, to to have this ability to bring guests on from other parts of the world that are going through this same fight um, and share their journeys and their stories, because again, it's just kind of like really like, I don't know, for me, maybe it's just me and maybe I'm overthinking this, but it's just wild that we're able to bring guests from, you know, the UK and other parts of the world that are battling because it just really resonates that this is a world fight. This is not just something that's happening here in the United States, but as you and I were talking about, the more awareness, the more stories we tell, the more amplification mm -hmm. that we give this thing, pancreatic cancer, and in sharing stories and and saying like, hey, we need help, 
you know, we need people to get involved. We need people to get engaged. You need people, and I'm not talking about money. Money certainly does help. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, making the awareness, that's how we're really going to change this thing on a global perspective. Uh, because it's not going to be, this isn't going to be the United States, uh, you know, finding a cure. It could be some a, a researcher in the UK. It could be someone in Italy. It could be someone in Australia, right? We just don't know that. But the more and more that we tell these stories from a global perspective, the greater impact I I truly believe we'll have. So thank you for joining us. Um, I know I rambled there a little bit. Uh, My coffee's kicking in. I know it's uh, it's a little bit early here in the United States. It's it's afternoon there um, in the UK, but I want to thank you for joining us here. And I'm looking forward uh, to hearing your story. And as I said, before we hit record, our first part of our podcast is really our guest opportunity to share with our audience their journey with pancreatic cancer. And and as I said before we hit record, you can go as far back as you want to share kind of your journey um, to bring us up to date. And you can stay as high level as you want as well. Mm -hmm. And with that, uh, the microphone is yours, Rebecca. Okay, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about being here because when I got diagnosed, one of the most important things to me was to um, spread awareness of, of this condition. So um, what happened to me is um, back in May, I just woke up with um, some stomach pain. I didn't think too much of it. I thought that it would kind of disappear after a couple of days, um, but it didn't. Um, We actually went away to France while I was having this stomach pain. And while I was there, it seemed to be coming worse and worse. Um, And I don't know if I told you, but I'm a nurse. So I did the typical nurse thing of self-diagnosing myself and decided that I had um, pancreatitis. And actually, when we returned to the UK um, from France, we went to um, straight to A&E, but the queue was out of the door, so we didn't stay. Left it a couple of days, and they um, diagnosed me with a um, urine infection and kind of just went from there. Started some antibiotics, um, and it didn't really improve anything. And I pushed and pushed and pushed to get some bloods and a scan done, which eventually did happen. And the blood showed that um, at that point, they looked like um, a chronic pancreatitis. So they um, referred me to the hospital and I was admitted to hospital. Um, and that point, um, the scans were showing pancreatitis. There was no sign of a tumour at that point. And really the question was why I had developed this pancreatitis. Um, and I waited for a endoscopic ultrasound um, at our um, tertiary hospital um, for six weeks. Had that done. And again, they couldn't see anything that indicated cancer. And actually, by that point, I was asking every doctor that came across me, um, is this cancer? And um, there was no signs of a tumour at that point. Um, it kind of, I then got discharged. I, I was, sorry, it, it was six so that was six weeks later, I'd had this endoscopic ultrasound, um, at which point I was obviously discharged from the hospital. And I was kind of living at home with this kind of condition that nobody really knew. And everyone was really convinced that I was going to end up with um, autoimmune pancreatitis. And they thought it was just that. Um, but because that's rare in itself, um, nobody really knew what to expect I don't think and so they were really fixated on that and I had questioned a few times are we so fixated on this autoimmune pancreatitis that we're missing a cancer which is what I had questioned but the scans didn't show a tumour and I do accept that you know if you can't see it then 
it's difficult to diagnose it. Um, so I kind of continued to come quite unwell and um, at home I developed um, horrendous itching and um, a really obvious jaundice. Um, and I got readmitted to hospital and at that point they re-scanned me and nobody had mentioned to me that that they then suspected a cancer but they had seen um, that one of my bile ducts had become quite um, swollen and um, narrowed so they inserted a stent and that made me so much better I was so you know the jaundice just drained from me the itching stopped almost straight away I was like a different person but I did then start developing this back pain um but I didn't know that they were suspecting cancer at that point I was discharged home and told that I would be reviewed when I was reviewed I was then told that I was being re-referred back to the tertiary centre and they would do a biopsy and as soon as they said that I guessed what they were thinking um I went to the hospital to have my biopsy within the two we have like a two-week um, cancer referral pathway so within I knew then that we, I was on this pathway nobody had really told me but I kind of got the gist and um I went to go and have this biopsy and when they, they sat me down to consent me for the biopsy they said obviously we have seen something on your scan that is sinister being a nurse the word sinister gets used in cancer and I said, no, it's not obvious because I didn't know that. This is new to me. You're telling me. Nobody's told me. Um, and they kind of tried to take it back a bit. But at that point, I knew I knew what was going to happen. And so they did the biopsies and it was confirmed it was cancer. Um, within a couple of days um, at the hospital, we sat down with the consultant. They told us the news then. I didn't know what the staging was. Um, they didn't say anything. Um, they just said that it had spread to the liver, but I am a nurse, I'm a paediatric nurse, so that's a different world to adult cancer medicine. So I knew, I was told that there was a spread to the liver, but I hadn't been told the staging. And then what happens is that that is a local hospital and then the local hospital referred me to the tertiary hospital, which then a couple of days later, they then told us that the staging was stage four. Um, but I guess we kind of knew at that point because we'd done some Googling, which obviously they all tell you not to do, but we had. Um, and so we knew we knew what we were going to get told. Um, so that was kind of my diagnosis and my journey getting to that diagnosis, which between it was in September that I had finally been told that it was cancer. So it was between May and September. And I know that people go through a lot longer journey than that. And... I have seen all my scans where I've seen that they clearly couldn't see this tumour. It was only when I got readmitted the second time when I was quite poorly that you can see that they then see this small mass. Um, so it felt like a long journey, but I'm not sure it was. I just felt really quite rubbish throughout that time. And then because our tertiary centre had a trial to join up to, I was then advised that I should go to the tertiary centre for my treatment, which is about an hour's drive from here. So I'm under the tertiary centre for my treatment and they signed me up to a trial for um, my chemotherapy. And I'm currently having that. And I've just had my sixth round of chemo and I'm about to have my seventh tomorrow, which at the moment is going well. Um, and then I 
so I've been on this trial now for a couple of months and um last so as part of the trial every two months you get scanned to see what's happening so I had my first scan after two months which was four rounds of chemo um and had those results just before Christmas um which was massively anxiety induced in waiting for those results we waited for two weeks for the results which felt like years um and we had them and at the moment it's going well and the tumor size is reduced so um that's that was amazing news to go into christmas with um but it's difficult because you just don't know what to expect and um yeah so that's kind of my journey we've the big thing for me is that i found it really difficult to relate to other people that have been in this situation so when I first got diagnosed we obviously went into research mode spending hours and hours looking for things looking for stories looking for positive outcomes um and the thing that I have found with pancreatic cancer is that I don't really know how to word it other than it kind of appears to be an older cancer so everything that I found particularly sort of UK stories was um, stories about my 70 year old mum has just been diagnosed or my 80 year old dad's just been diagnosed and I was finding found it so difficult to find any stories that were 30 year olds 36 year olds like me who've got two young children and how do you cope with that situation with pancreatic cancer um, and so that's why I wanted to do something like a podcast and do and spread my stories because I if you know I couldn't find that and if someone else is in my situation and finds my story and sees what treatment I'm on and sees what I'm doing then maybe that will help them so that's kind of yeah my story wow <laughs> so I was you you gave it up and I know my mom always said never ask a woman her age so you're 36 yeah. uh yeah. you just mentioned that so I, I, I want to, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know this is not easy uh, to kind of go through those steps for a variety of reasons. So I really appreciate you opening up and allowing our audience to hear that. I, I got a couple questions and I want to go all the way back. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go, and, and, and I always preface this question and, and say that we know hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So yeah. we're not. I don't ask this question to to have people kind of beat themselves up. It's, mm -hmm. That's not what this is about. Uh, but just to think about prior to May twenty two, you're a nurse, mm -hmm. so you, you get it. You understand your body probably yeah. more. You also probably understand the system and how to advocate, which we'll talk about. Were there any health issues that? Nothing. You know, that we could raise a flag to that would say like, hey, is there a family history of cancers or anything? No. So, I mean, this is something that's being looked into. They're looking at genetics and we've I've had genetic yeah. bloods. Those results should be back relatively soon. And from my understanding, pancreatic cancer can be one of those where you can develop a gene. So they are looking at that for me. Um, but no, I was healthy maybe a bit overweight needed to lose a bit of weight but not, not massively I I just yeah not, nothing the stomach pain was was a bit of a shock the only thing that had happened maybe uh about 
10, 12 years ago was that I had developed similar pain and ended up with gallstones and my gallbladder had been removed. Mm. So initially I thought, oh, this feels like when I had gallbladder pain, but actually I don't have one, so it can't be that, and kind of moved on. Um, but that's the only that's the only thing that I'd ever had kind of any medical treatment for. There was nothing else at all. Interesting. Um, I got a question when stomach pain and what was your stomach pain like? And I know you said, you just said like gallstones and I've had, so I said, interesting when you had your gallbladder removed, I had my gallbladder removed in 2019 and I had a, I would just have like these massive sharp pains, like just like, like it was excruciating. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people, you know, the doctor's like, oh, it's like passing a stone. And I ended up having gallstones, right, that were yeah. lodging in there. And and it was just a, a – so when you said in 22 you were having similar pain, so was it like that similar – like um, was it sharp, dull? Initially, no. Initially it was dull. It was kind of just sitting there, if that makes sense. It was just there. It was kind of sat just below my ribs. It was just a kind of rumbling pain. I we went. I went out for dinner with friends. I went to my sister's baby shower. I was still doing things. It wasn't bothering me that much. When we were making the decision to go to France, which was like a couple of days later, we'd got this holiday booked, and I did. It did. I did remember saying to my husband, "Should we be going? I don't know whether I should be going because this pain is still there." And I kind of then put it back to, my, to the back of my head and thought, no, like it'll go by the time and then you'll be wishing that you went. So we went. Mm-hmm. And actually when I was in France, that's when it became that test pain. And I don't know why it was silly really, but I was kind of nervous about having to go to A&E in France, the language barrier. I don't speak any French. And I was thinking, you know, what am I going to end up paying? And so I kind of thought I'll deal with it when I get home, but, it started to become obvious that if I was eating anything fatty, that the pain was becoming more intense. And that's what made me start Googling. And that's when I came up with pancreatitis and thought, I've got pancreatitis. I'm fairly certain of it. So we, I mean, we were only there for five days. So as we were getting to the end, I was stopping having anything fatty because I'd kind of clicked that was making it worse. But it was like an intense pain in the middle of my chest that was just unbearable and I remember thinking when I got back and them suggesting that I'd got a urine infection you don't get pain like that with a urine infection this is not a urine infection but then they did do a urine dip and it showed things so I thought oh Rebecca maybe you're just trying to diagnose yourself and actually you know just stop you're not always a nurse so I kind of stopped um but as soon as the antibiotics didn't make any difference I knew that it wasn't it was I knew what I needed to get done and yeah, push for that. So was it after you ate more so than like just yeah. through the day? It was it was absolutely fine. And then as soon as I ate anything with any fat in it at all, it was just unbearable and it would last for hours. It, it, it's almost, and, and the reason why I asked that question, I mean, and this is like the frustrating part from the community, right? Is like these signs and symptoms are so... 
like that could just be like you like you said before it was similar to like gallbladder mm-hmm. pain right yeah. and so i think that's the frustrating thing right like we don't have this early detection test mm-hmm. right which is so frustrating um and and i think the other thing and th- and this is where i, I you know and th- this is going to be a, a i have a lot of loaded questions rebecca and this is one of the one of many where i'm going with this and, and talking about signs and symptoms being so vague as a clinician, now I know you're not in the cancer space, you're in, in pediatrics, but you you know enough, right? You, you, you know what you know. I don't want to put blame on the, the medical community, but it's also frustrating, right? Because these signs and symptoms are vague, but I feel like our medical community, I guess I'll speak from here from the United States because, you know, you said you went from May to September, you know, which isn't a long period of time, but it is kind of, you know, some people... I know some people, we've had stories where people similar, and then we've had people within two weeks, like they've been diagnosed yeah, yeah. and it's like hit or miss. I remember a guy, like he had, uh, he thought he was having a pancreatic, like he went to an ER in Florida. Um, the first person diagnosed him with pancreatitis, but he's like, dude, I don't drink. I didn't have any drinks. You know, I'm not, you know, the, the signs and symptoms of pancreatitis, that's not it. He had steak. Mm-hmm. And um, he just had this massive pain. And then the second person that comes in is like, huh, let's dig deeper. And they find that he has, you know, a tumor, a mass, you know, like within within like hours, they figured this out, right? Yeah. And so I guess my point here is is being in the medical field, you know, I, I know you've mentioned, you know, the self-diagnosis you mentioned yeah. um, and then doing your own research. It, it's just, that had to be frustrating because- you know enough, but like you're not getting the answers from the medical community. Yeah. Like the system that you have. And I'm not trying, I mean, this happens here in the United States. It's yeah, not just, no. I, I don't think this is like a UK public health system versus private healthcare system. This is a global problem. Yeah. Yeah. For me, initially, up until I got admitted to hospital, um, in hospital, I felt this too. It was up until then, I, I felt like I was kind of being fogged off. It was, I'm not overly dramatic. Although I was in a lot of pain, I perhaps didn't present like that. And so I was saying, you know, this is the worst pain I've ever felt. I've had two children and this is worse than that. <laughs> and and I think I wasn't coming across like that. Um, but for me, I, you know, I did see, I mean, it was, I, I'm saying it's a short amount of time because perhaps I pushed. And I remember saying, Actually, if this was somebody else, if this wasn't, if this was someone who didn't have the confidence to push or didn't have the confidence to keep going back, that perhaps they wouldn't, you know, would they be diagnosed now? Like it would have taken so much longer. Whereas I was, this was over kind of a week's period where I was going to the doctor, got a UTI diagnosis, came back a couple of days later, went to the doctor again, said no, this isn't it went to the doctor again and then the third time when I went to the doctor I said please can we do bloods and a scan and that's when I, I felt listened to and and they did it and called me almost immediately after my bloods came back and then got admitted so it was kind of I knew what I needed it was getting there but would someone else have the confidence to say I need bloods and a scan please can we do it probably not and it is frustrating definitely yeah I I I hate to beat up on the, and we're not beating up on the medical community. I get it. I and and I and I tend to think that it's more the systems and not the people, mm, right? Because yeah. I know um, 
here in the U.S., um, insurance typically runs the roost in terms of, you know, clinical trials and are you clinical trial eligible and have you done, you know, six rounds of Flufluronox before you become eligible, before you can even apply to a clinical trial, right? right. Or, you know, they have to do you know, this procedure, you know, you have to do the EUS before you do the MRI or the CAT scan, right? And yeah. sometimes it's a scheduling issue, you know, with just getting in to see, um, you know, a specialist to do that time of ex type of exam versus just going straight to the CT or straight to the MRI. So the, 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 again, I, I don't, I didn't bring this up to, to pick on anyone individually, I just think it's the systems, but I but I do feel we can do a lot better, right? Like, and yeah. this is where advocating and and raising awareness and sharing that. So, uh, on that note, as you look back, and and this is a, an, another loaded question, no right or wrong answer. Was there anything? And I know you said confidence. You just mentioned confidence. Was there is there anything that you can kind of point, not necessarily a tipping point, but maybe as you look back, hindsight being twenty twenty advice that you would give to someone given your experience, like getting those answers or, or continuing to push, what type of advice would you give to people, you know, that might be in a similar situation right now, today, listening to the podcast? Uh, my, my advice would be that if you think that there is something not right and you're not getting that action that you should just continue to push until you do get that action. And actually you're perfectly I mean, here in the UK, you could go to a different hospital or a different um, doctor and ask for for advice and ask for those bloods and ask for a scan. It's difficult. I mean, I I don't I don't. It is it is hard because I think a lot of it is awareness and understanding here. I think that um, certainly as kind of my journey went on, the feeling was was that I was too young to have. Um, pancreatic cancer and so it was kind of discounted um but actually clearly not because I do um and I think maybe it's just having that awareness and understanding and I have no doubt that all the health professionals that were involved with my case that know now what this diagnosis was will never forget that and will always use that whenever they're presented with similar symptoms and but my yeah, my advice is that if you feel that you that you're not getting anywhere, is to keep pushing and and advocate for yourself, and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself because it's your life and your your body, and you know best. Yeah, it's so powerful, and and thank you for sharing that. I, I think the one, and this goes back to the system. I I guess I'm beating up on the system today, but. You know, we we put doctors and clinicians on such a high pedestal across the world. This is just not in the United States, and and I think people sometimes feel like they're overstepping a boundary by doing that. So, do you feel because you were in the medical field that kind of gave you kind of a little bit of an advantage or disadvantage, maybe because, like we said, you knew, you know you know more than the average person, right? Going in, yeah. So, do you think that was an advantage or disadvantage? Me confidence it gave me confidence to say actually could we just do some bloods or could we just check this or that it definitely gave me that confidence um but I guess it's hard because I don't have an understanding of pancreatic cancer and I don't have an understanding of sort of adult medicine so there were some things that I would question and and I mean 
actually from day one of being in hospital the first thing I said is is this cancer and I was told no 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 cancer you're too young so actually I had actually diagnosed myself months ago um yeah I think it it's an advantage and a disadvantage the disadvantage of knowing stuff is that you know too much when it becomes hard and it becomes about you and then you become you sort of catastrophize everything because you think of all the worst case scenarios that you know of from when you've been in that situation at work um but it definitely has the advantage of giving you knowing the system knowing that you can contact the medical secretary um to get and answers or knowing who to contact within the hospital or within the GP surgery and also yeah having confidence to question things I think now going back to where you currently are you're in this trial clinical trial mm-hmm. uh you're going through the treatments have they given you kind of like a um like a playbook in terms of like, okay, we're going to do this for 12 rounds. We're going to scan every three months and then we're going to kind of reassess or so, where, where does that look for you? So I guess that's a little bit of a story that I've kind of missed actually. So initially when I was, when I first went to the tertiary center, I was told about this trial. We had to make the decision whether I would go on to the trial or whether I would go to the standard ox treatment. Um, we just, it, I mean, that's an impossible decision when you have little knowledge or understanding of these treatments. Um, and I was lucky because I've got a very close friend who um, works within kind of the paediatric cancer world. So she spent hours and hours researching for me. And then we made that decision to go on to the trial. The trial um, runs for six months and you have um, two monthly scans. Um, and so it's around 12 to 13, I think it's 12 rounds of, of chemo. And then we had kind of said, and then what next? And I kind of feel, I don't know if it's the same in the earth, but I kind of feel here that when it, with, with cancer is that we don't really talk about what's next. We kind of just wait and see what happens. Whereas I'm more of a, I like to know what the next plan is. And I appreciate that might not happen, but I need to know what it is. So I never really got that understanding of what happens next after the chemo. Um, But when we had talked about whether there was a possibility of surgery, tumour is operable, which just that we've got these METs on the liver. Um, They had kind of said to us, well, no, that wouldn't be an option. Um, However, we had managed to... um, find someone who had been in a similar situation to me and had had surgery. Um, And so we contacted um, the surgeon that she was under, which is at a different hospital, and we did have an appointment with him. And and his kind of feeling was that if the chemo was, um, you know, had an effect and I did respond to chemo, that there may be a possibility of surgery. So there's quite a difference in approach, I guess. It may be that the tertiary centre under, say, after six months, oh, yeah, no, actually, you've responded really well. That's fine. Yeah, we will look at surgery, but they don't really discuss the possibilities. They just told us it was really unlikely. So I'm, I, I can't really say what, what's next because I don't know. I, I'm kind of aiming for this surgeon at a different hospital now. Um, and his letter basically said if there was a response, then he would consider it. So that's kind of my aim is to get my scan sent over to him and let him make that decision. Um, but it feels very much like I need to take on managing who's going to do what and what's going to be next. 
And I have to admit, I didn't realise that that was a thing. I didn't realise that that's how it works. And um, actually, from you nodding, I'm assuming that this is the same in the US as it is in the UK. And working in paediatrics, I had always assumed that it would always be that every option would be put on the table to the family and that child, and they would make that decision. But from my experience now, as an adult in the healthcare system is that that's not the case. It's very much based on your centre that you've gone to and how they manage things. And what I didn't realise is that there might be somebody out there who then has other skills, other ways of managing it, and you're not really told those options unless you seek them. So now I'm very much kind of going along the lines of, okay, well, I'm going to manage this. So um, my aim is to get the surgery, but I can't be sure that that's what's going to happen because I don't know. Yeah. Rebecca, I, I'm as you said, I'm nodding. Um, yeah, it's crazy, right? Like you, you just explained like that's that to me, and and I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Like it's insanity, right? Like you're you're battling your mom. Uh, well, you're battling pancreatic cancer, right? And we all know that the obvious and and. But then you got to figure this out, mm. right? Yeah. And this is the most frustrating thing. I've been doing this 12 years and regardless of where people are fighting this, there's no roadmap. No. Right? And this is the frustration that, um, you know, I, I sigh here because, you know, we, we just saw like the government, I'm going to go off, off a, of a, I'm going to go down a little rabbit hole here. <laughs> And I don't care who I offend, quite honestly, because I hate pancreatic cancer more than anything. But, you know, I just saw, you know, the government just here in the United States just gave $15 million through the Department of Defense to pancreatic cancer research. We just we just passed a $1.7 trillion bill, bill whatever. I, I think it was like $1.7. I don't, I don't watch the news anymore. It's like insane amount of money. And and there was like a lot of money that went to a lot of, lot of other causes. Mm. Uh, and I'm like 15 million, you know, what? 15 million is nothing. Mm. Like it's nothing. 15 million, 15 million is the startup cost to open a lab here in the United States. So if I want to open a pancreatic cancer research lab, I need 15 million to do it. That's what that does. Yeah. But we don't have roadmap. We don't have early detection. We don't have treatments. So like government's one part of it, but you know, to, to, to not have a roadmap globally on this disease, which, you know, we know the statistics, we know the reality. It's not an old person's disease. It, it impacts everyone. Mm. Yeah, statistically, we can kind of look at the numbers and it'll say like people over 50 to 70 are really kind of like the the the, the bulk of it. But 50 years old is young. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. you're 36. I, we've had people on the podcast in their 20s. Mm. You know, so what, does that mean that they don't matter? Mm. <laughs> like it's it's crazy, right? And it's just it's just insane to hear you speak. You know, I, I appreciate the honesty, but to say like, hey, you don't know, like that's crazy. This is crazy. Yeah. Like, you know, and I'm not trying to 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 focus on that, but it's just insane that we're we're, you know, again, I've been doing this 12 years and we still don't have this roadmap. Uh, but kudos to you to find a friend who understands it in oncology, to find a surgeon 
that will do this, right? Because you have this this fight to live and to to figure out and do whatever you have to do. But like, again, here we are in 2022, like we're talking about going to Mars, but we have patients that have to kind of navigate themselves through this journey of cancer. Like it's mad. I I had no idea until I was in this situation, how much you have to advocate for yourself. Otherwise you really, obviously my chemo is classed as palliative chemo. And my feeling is that I would, that, Unless I push for more, would there be more? Will will they allow me to have more? And I I just don't know whether if I just sat back and said, oh okay, that's fine. If that's what you say, that's what happens. If that would be it, um, and maybe I'm wrong. But I just feel like we don't. It doesn't get talked about. There's no there's no clear plan. There's no oh well, this is what would happen in this scenario. Or this is what would happen in this scenario. It's just well, we'll try this and then we'll see. It's, and that makes it really hard. I mean, everybody's different, obviously, but for me, I would I need to know what I'm aiming for. And actually having met that surgeon gave me drive to know that I could aim for that. Um, and, and I think that makes a real difference. If you're going through chemo and you're feeling horrendous, if you know that there's a reason that you're doing this, that you're going to push and aim for surgery or whatever's next, then then it keeps you going and it makes you think to yourself, okay, this feels horrendous, but I'm going to keep going because, you know, I can do it for this. So powerful uh, because you're 120% right, right? You have people in your corner that are pushing for you uh, versus, you know, like you said, like if you didn't advocate and if you didn't push, what would be the outcome? Mm. Who knows, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm, Excited to hear that you found someone, uh, because many people don't, um, you know. And, and, and but it's also super, super frustrating, right? From a patient advocate mm-hmm. to hear that you've got to do these things, and like these things aren't offered, and there's no roadmap. And and I go again. This is the power of sharing stories. And I'm not tooting our horn here, but I know many groups share stories, whether they're written or through videos, mm-hmm. um, that has increased in this community as a as pancreatic cancer community. And and for anyone listening or watching, just do your find find those stories. I, I would stay off the internet in terms of Google because that could be kind of a a dark place, which I know you mentioned yeah. a bit in yeah. the beginning, right? But finding like literature. Or not literature, but just stories, right? Like yeah. of yeah. people that have figured it out. Um, because I think people want to help other people, but those are those those are the powerful ones, right? How to navigate through the system, and that's where I think, you know, sharing your journey and and sharing, you know, what you did is just so powerful. So thank you. I've got a couple of questions here left for us. Um, you talk a little bit about friends. And I, and I know this comes up often about support. Mm-hmm. You're a young mom. I know we haven't talked about the kids yet. Um, but what type of support have you gotten? Um, and, and what does that support mean to you that you can share with our audience? I mean, support from um, support professionally was quite hard to um, come by, if I'm honest, from kind of professional support. 
um, and it took a long time. You know, I felt like I needed some counselling with this situation, and it but it took a long time to get that, which I think is a shame. Um, from my friends has been absolutely amazing. You know, they've they've been there every step of the way. We're really honest with everybody from the very very start. They've kind of been part of the journey from the beginning. And I kind of feel like everybody's had their roles. So I've had friends who will just come and sit and have coffee with me. I've got friends who, you know, my, like I said, my close friend, she she did, she did works within the cancer world. She did loads of research. She was my researcher. Um, you know, just being there to have a chat to, to talk things through with has been amazing. Um, family have been so supportive. Um, my sister has been amazing she's had a new baby and yeah she's kind of given up all her time to chat to me on the phone or or be here with me when I've kind of felt like I don't want to be here on my own um my husband has been my complete rock and my mum and dad have been so supportive too I've had kind of from work we've had lots of support I've obviously got close friends at work who have been there kind of as friends and then as kind of a, a work community they've been supportive they did a collection for us which was just overwhelming and it's meant that we'll be able to take our girls away for a couple of days and my husband is a firefighter and his um his the fire service have been amazing to us they have a um fire service charity which is available for um sort of family um, members as well as the firefighter and um, actually just before Christmas they they kind of have a hotel and they sent us to the hotel and we stayed there for a couple of days which was lovely um, and they yeah they've been an amazing support to us giving my husband time off for appointments and things like that so I, I, I can't support, can't fault the support we've had we've just had you know I think people I don't know. I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, gosh, what would I have done if it was one of my friends or somebody I knew that was in this situation? Would I have known to do all these things that my amazing friends have done? You know, I've had hampers brought round with food, hampers brought round with lovely things in for the girls, for, for us. Um, and I was thinking, would I have known to do those things? But I don't think you do know to do those things. You just sent that's what's needed by that person. And it's it's been so massively appreciated because, you know, at the very beginning, there was lots and lots and lots of low, hard days, whereas now there's so many more sort of up days and less low days. But, you know, you might hit one of those low days and then you look at the front door and someone's left you this lovely hamper on the front door and it just makes such a difference to you and it make, it just gives you that boost again. So, yeah, support has been brilliant. And now I kind of feel like it doesn't really matter. if I don't need that professional support. I, I have that kind of personal support and that's that's what's needed more than anything. So, yeah. So powerful. How old are your kids? Um, 10 and 5. So they clearly know something's up with mom. Yeah, so we've talked about mummy's got cancer um, and mummy's going to have chemotherapy. Um, there's a UK charity um, and they they provide um, little bears and um, books about the bear that's going to have um, chemotherapy. So we use that to kind of explain it to them. And um, the, they've got one of the little bears each and his hair comes off and he can wear a wig and stuff. So we've we've talked about that. We've been really open with them. We've not talked about 
um, too much else because that's that's enough. And to be honest, they're aware of it, but they still need their lives to carry on and they are just equally as demanding as they were before. So <laughs> they haven't changed, which is fine. That, that's good for me. I'm pleased that yeah. they feel that they can just carry on. And they're a bit oblivious to the fact that mummy's on her chemo pump even though it's right next to them, they're, they're kind of, they still need their snacks. So that's, uh, I'm giggling. I, I, you know, in a positive way, because that's awesome to hear, right. Yeah. That the kids yeah. are, they're resilient and they're, they're being, you know, a 10 year old and a five year old, exactly. which is what you want. Right. I'm sure you don't want them burdened with, you know, this, the, the you know, that dealing with the cancer diagnosis yeah. in their own way, yeah. but, still being children, um, which thank you for sharing that. And, and you know, th this is the thing, this, this cancer is not an old, you said it in the very beginning, it's not an old person's disease. Like no. this impacts families, it impacts young people and um, it's powerful to hear, mm -hmm. but it's also impactful because this, these are the stories we need to tell. Uh, people need to wake up. Yeah. Um, and I, and I mean that, in all seriousness, like this is impacting young people, just like many mm -hmm. awful other diseases. And I think that's part of the reason globally that maybe people sometimes tend to shy away from it. Not to say that having a, a grandparent get the disease is, is, is not as worse as someone who's 36 years old, but I, I think there's like a little bit of a stigma, right? Like, oh, it's you know, it only impacts older people. Yeah. Absolutely. I hate when I hear that. Why like older people don't matter. <laughs> but also it does impact younger people though. Like that's ignorance, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I got two questions left for you. I know I asked you the advice on, you know, being an advocate, but this next question, just thinking about, and there's no right or wrong, this is another loaded question. Given what your experience someone gets diagnosed today, what are maybe a couple things that the best bits of advice that you would give that person to do um, as they begin their pancreatic cancer journey? Coming from your perspective and, and what you went through, um, which is you know pertinent to you. I think firstly, don't Google, you're right. <laughs> and don't, the stats are the stats. However, they, one, somebody said something to me, which I thought was so important because I had got myself in a real state about statistics. And she said, statistics are a mean. There's somebody down there and there's somebody up there and you have to push and hope that you're the person up there. And I think that's really important. And it changed my mindset completely because I had got so fixated on the fact that these are statistics and so that can be the, that that is my story that has to be my story but actually I don't know my story because it hasn't panned out yet and so you just take a step back take a breather it's it is horrendous it's an it's a rubbish diagnosis but actually you don't know how this is going to pan out for you and for me my biggest aim was that I was never i I knew that you can't you can't control what ha you can't control how you respond you can't control how you know how your cancer grows you can't control those things but what you can control is your mind and how you deal with it and I do think that your mind is so important to kind of help you do better and I think that 
you know, you my my biggest aim was never to let this define me. And actually, my children carrying on as normal kind of shows me that they clearly aren't. Cancer isn't really a thing in the house. You know, mummy has chemo and then there's a three days where I just feel really rubbish. And then we just carry on like normal. And it was really important to me that that was what I wanted. And when I first got the diagnosis, people would diagnosis people would say to me what do you want to do what do you want you know where do you want to go what do you want to do what things are there that you've always wanted to do and I said I just want normal complete normal so I don't want any of these big things I just want to carry on go and do the school run come back take the kids to the clubs and if we can if you can stay like that then your head calm down slightly because yeah so if you do get that diagnosis take a moment to you know have those tears have you know that time where you are devastated and then take a deep breath and say okay this is my story now and I'm going to do as well as I possibly can and I think that that has what is has what has helped me move on so powerful and I love you bring up the statistics and I've said this before I don't think I've ever seen anyone say that you're either in that group or that group. And if there's doctors out there that tell people that they're wrong, right? So there's nothing in the statistics that says you're not part of the 11% or 12% of that survivability, right? But what you said is just so powerful though. It's just the mean, right? Like it's, it's a number, but there's nothing in that. And I think that's, and, and I, I've said this before, I think part of as, as being an awareness uh, organization I think we sometimes we do lead with the the bigger number because that's how we're trying to motivate people. But we also have to make sure people understand like there's no one out there that says uh, you're not part of that other number. Like there's it's not like you know like and so that's where I I I think you know statistics are what they are. You know, um I think people know what they are, but I I think he, he, to your point that mindset and knowing that you're in this group you're in that group right now right Mm -hmm. so that's that's the mindset you have to have is just so powerful so thank you for sharing that um i've got one last question for you before we share with our audience where they can connect with you Mm -hmm. um if they want to reach out to you and, and, and learn more um and and you know talk to you a little bit further about your journey this last question is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. It's my last loaded question. Um, but given your experience, what you have gone through, how would you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? Hard, sad, but you know, from because I kind of went through that journey initially, what I found the hardest at the moment to kind of get my head around is that the actual pancreatic cancer is causing me no symptoms whatsoever. So I, when I come out of kind of my side effect week, I feel really, really well, which I guess makes it harder, but yeah, just hard, just hard. It's hard because, because of, because of the statistics, I guess, because of kind of that understanding of, what it means when you get that diagnosis yeah tough it's 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 been a, a tough journey but it's kind of made me a very different person and much I if I had been told a year ago 
you're going to get this diagnosis. I just thought to myself, well, that's it. I, there's no way I'll be able to cope with that, not with my head. And I've just become this completely different person of like strength, I guess. So I kind of sometimes sit there and think maybe I have just been given this to kind of raise awareness about pancreatic cancer and just become this different, stronger person that I wasn't for. But it's a t- it's a tough lesson. <laughs> a tough thing tough tough thing to go through for that. powerful answer thank you there's no right or wrong to it um it, it, it's your experience your definition so thank you for sharing that with our audience rebecca our last thing here um someone listening might just be diagnosed yeah they want to reach out or people following your journey support you help you raise awareness where's the best place for our audience to connect with you um, so through my Instagram, so I, I when I um, first got diagnosed, when, like I say, we were looking for um, stories and, you know, we went straight to Instagram thinking that we would find loads of stories and actually that, that wasn't the case. And I then felt really passionate that I wanted to share my story through Instagram. So I have an Instagram page called um, Fighting with Pancreatic Cancer. Um, and, yeah, I've just kind of been sharing my journey. Um, sharing my story I have to be honest I dip in and out of it because like some some days or some weeks like particularly when we wait for scan results I just did my head wasn't there I, could, I just couldn't share what I wanted to share um but in general I try and share the highs and lows of it all and um yeah I'm more than happy for people to contact me through that private message me through it or follow my story and yeah and I, you know, if there's somebody out there listening that also is in a, in the same situation, you know, I'd be happy to connect because I, I really feel like it can be a lonely place. And so it's kind of good to share with somebody else who understands. I love it. And I just went out and uh, followed you here, <laughs> fighting with pancreatic cancer, uh, Becca. I, I love it. Um, Rebecca. I want to thank you for uh, being a guest on the Project Purple podcast and and sharing your journey and really sharing, you know, the, the story that this is not an old person's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw a picture of your family and it, it just, uh, you know, uh, th- this is such an important story to tell. And I just uh, want to thank you for uh, for allowing us the opportunity to share your journey. And I look forward to following you on social media and um, continue to see you have success. Um, I have faith. Uh, you're an amazing person and uh, you're going to beat this thing. Thank you. And also thank you for letting me share my story because, like I say, when I found out, I said, maybe it's the nurse in me, but I just want to help other people that go through this and I, I want to raise awareness and I, I want someone else, just even if it's one person, to listen to this and hear my story and say, oh my gosh, she's in the same situation as me. Oh, finally, there's somebody else that I can relate to. That would that would mean the world to me. That's what I set out to do. So thank you for letting me share my story. So powerful. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like this episode, feel free to share this episode. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening and be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.